Always remember the first five rows gets a uh, 5% discount in your tithe, so come on up. For some of you, that's not a lot of savings. Oh, oh, I did not say that, did I? I'm sorry. <laughs> well, uh, let's do uh, two things to start off. If you have a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 3. And uh, put your finger on that section and then turn to Romans chapter 8, because we're going uh, to jump to the two of them. And if somebody can give me a page number of a house Bible, that'd be great. And 815 is what? Is that Philippians? Okay. Anybody got Romans? If you need a Bible, there should be some back on the Ask Me Anything table. And remember, this is a, this is a Rome-free zone, so if you need coffee or the bathrooms are over here, or if you just get tired of this service, you can get up. Because we're, we're going to dive into something kind of heavy this morning, so let's, let's go, okay? Philippians chapter 3, and this is verse 10. This is the Apostle Paul, and uh, these are his words. He says, I want to know Christ... Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. And I'm going to stop there because uh, something's been happening in here for the last three weeks. And I'd like to say that we planned it and that we orchestrated it, but we didn't. Um, God it just seems to be moving. I mean, there's just an un- extraordinary amount of stories that are coming from you guys to some of us in the worship team and up here that God is kind of unraveling you and he's doing different things through these these three questions that we've been asking you to wrestle with in the new year of 2011. And this right here kind of captures everything that we've been talking about for the last three weeks. Paul said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Let me try to explain that because in Romans 6, at the beginning of that chapter, Paul says something really interesting. He says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, that's his resurrection, through the glory of the Father, and get this, we too may live a new life. What Paul is saying is because Jesus rose again, he's inviting us now, those of us in Christ, to live a resurrected life, a new life. So when we talked three weeks ago about the question, do you dare to truly see yourself? Remember that question? When you look in the mirror, will you really see yourself? And we walked away from the mirror of shame, and we walked into the mirror of will you see yourself as redeemed, as being made holy, as wearing the righteousness of Christ, that we are new people that are gifted by the Lord to walk in His Spirit. Would we dare to see that? Because I'm telling you, it's easier for me to see myself in shame than it is to see myself made new. Because when I see myself in shame, it lets me off the hook. But when I see myself made new, okay, now that leads to my second question. If I see myself new, then what do you hunger for? That was our second question. What is your deepest desire? That question alone right there will kick over the money changers in your heart. What is your deepest desire? And we began to unpack that, is it possible that as redeemed people under every one of my desires, even the desires that lead me to addictions, 
there, there is a pulsating desire there that the Lord put there. And then last week, we talked about what has you. We all have a lot of stuff, but what stuff has you? And we didn't talk about it in terms of materialism. We talked about it in, in terms of the resurrection. That when stuff has me, it shrinks my world. But when I shed the skin of the stuff that has me, it brings me into the vastness of God's kingdom. He's opened up the cage so that I can run out in the wildness of his kingdom. But in that wildness, it's not safe. And that's only fair to say that. Because look at the rest of this passage. Paul says, I want to know Christ Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. (laughs) Sharing in his suffering. So here's my fourth and final question for you for 2011 to consider. As you enter this new year, what is your view of suffering? And I think that how you answer this question is going to be critical about which mirror do you stand in front of? Which life are you living out this year? Yeah, I was exposed to, uh, oh, what's the country singer? George Strait. Many, many years ago, and he's still alive. Is he in this room, George? Is anybody here related to him? Just want to be careful, all right? George is country, strong, all right? And he's got a new song out. Have y'all heard the new song? It's actually, uh, it's a, they plagiarized it from the movie Hitch, I believe. And in the chorus of this song, it says, Life's not the breath you take, but the moments that take your breath away. What do you mean? That is writing, you know? But you know what's funny about that is uh, this idea that life is not about all the things that we do, but life is about those moments that, you know, astound you, that that we take pictures of, that create memories, that those moments where you say, okay, that's a postmark, that's a, you know, that's a place, that's a time. And I just want to say this morning, we've been lied to. We've been duped. We've been bamboozled. We have been deceived. And the reason that we've been deceived is because we actually believe that kind of stuff. That life is not the breath you take, but the moments that take your breath away. And so we start to hook our hope on these moments in our lives that are going to make our lives significant. These things that are going to happen that somehow or another are going to turn my life from being, uh uh-huh, to wow. You know what's amazing about this idea that if I hang all my hopes on this idea that I'm looking for moments or things or stuff to happen that's going to make my life brilliant, then all the stuff that's in between those moments are almost like throwaways. You know, like working 40 hours a week just so that we can live on the weekends. You know, and so we despise the 40 hours that we spend in the office just so on the weekends we can, we can wrap up all the stuff that we want to do. And I want to challenge you with this because Paul said in Romans 5 that those of us that are living in the new life, not only do we rejoice, but we also rejoice in our suffering. 
that even our suffering are moments of life. What Paul was saying was it's not just those moments that take your breath away. It's all these other moments that you wish you could do away with. But if you would stop wishing that you could do away with them and you would pause to breathe into those moments the reality of who we are in Christ, then joy would be birthed in those moments. And guess what? Those moments are most of our lives. In other words, let me, let me put it this way. If you're looking for life, you will avoid suffering at all costs. If you're alive, you will walk into suffering with great joy. So let's try to unpack this a little bit. Because we all have different ways of dealing with suffering, with dealing with those times when we sacrifice things and we struggle, where life throws us things that we don't want or cause us great amounts of pain. One of the ways that we tend to deal with that uh, is we become blamers. We begin to say things like, this is not fair, this isn't what I wanted, and we start getting angry, and we start blaming other people. We even start blaming God. We start blaming the person that we're married to, or we start blaming the person that we dated, or we start blaming our parents, or we start blaming the church, or we start blaming the guy that's standing up there talking every Sunday, which is probably a good place to blame. And we have this habit of blaming not just people that we know, but also people we don't know. And life circumstances. Maggie and I were going to the Y the other day, and Maggie's my daughter. And she's driving, and, uh, which is always a, a real test of faith for me. Because uh, she's such a wonderful driver, and I'm not. No. And uh, no, she's a brilliant driver. And so we're driving, and I'm saying, so how was your day? And she goes, you know, it was great. And, and I said, really? You seem a little stressed out. And she goes, no, I'm fine. And uh, I said, come on, talk to me about it. What's going on? She, and she said, oh, no, no, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. And then this car cut out in front of us. And Maggie screams, thank you very much. And she just starts going, I hate people that are cutters. I hate them. They're cutting in front of me. I said, okay, wow. <laughs> so your day went good, huh? But isn't it funny how we do that? When life doesn't go our way, when we feel a tremendous amount of stress or we're suffering, it's so easy for us to find something to blame. It's that's fault. It's my career's fault. It's my friend's fault. It's they're not enough. Another way that we kind of handle suffering and pain uh, is I call it uh, pain-free dentistry. Uh, if you've ever heard an ad for that, uh, my doctor, he prescribes that he's a pain-free dentistry, and you go in and he gives you a little pill, a little happy pill, and then he puts this mask on your face and uh, gives you happy gas. And have you ever had the happy gas? And, uh, you know, and it makes you start to see like little fairies, you know, floating around the room. And the little stuffed animals begin to talk to you. And his office becomes the Chronicles of Narnia, you know. <laughs> do you hear Aslan? You know, it always freaks me out. I can't do the happy gas. Even with that, it's not pain-free. But... Isn't that true that we all have processes in which we numb our pain? We all have ways that we try to minimize our pain. 
What's, what's your coping mechanism with your pain? When you're suffering, how do you numb it? Because we all have one. I mean, maybe your happy gas is fantasy in all different uh, aspects. Maybe it's medication, whether alcohol or drugs or maybe even food. Maybe your medication, the way that you numb your pain, is relationships and creating constantly new relationships. I don't know. Maybe it's entertainment. But it's funny, if we start to use things to numb our pain, it's funny how we begin to associate our pleasure with the things that we're using to numb us from the pain. And guess what begins to be birthed out of that? Even out of a noble desire to not want to hurt, addictions begin to come out of that. And I don't know how you've defined addictions, but I can tell you that probably almost everybody in this room struggles with some kind of addiction. Something you've attached your heart to that you believe is really going to relieve the pain in your life. But the one that I love the most, because I grew up in the South, is not this idea of blaming other people, because that wasn't nice in the South. And it wasn't numbing, because that's just not something you did. It was what I call self-shame. And self-shame is that Southern mentality, when somebody asks you how you're doing, is you go, I'm great. I'm great. And they say, really? I heard so much bad stuff happen to you this week. Uh, You know, like, didn't you lose an arm in that car wreck? You know, I'm great. I'm fantastic. Thank you. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm not hurting at all. I'm really, I'm so good. And the way that we do that as good Southerners is we start telling ourselves things like, it's not that bad. It's really not that bad. I'm really, I'm really all right. And we convince ourselves that because we say, you know, there are people in other parts of the world that suffer a lot more than I do. I don't have the right to suffer. And so we begin to shame our own pain. And we shame our, our own pain to the degree that where we don't allow ourselves to feel the pain. And we tell ourselves, I have really no right to feel this bad. And we start using things like, I should be over this by now. Like when you break up from a relationship, and what's the rule? You know, if how long should you suffer uh, from a broken relationship? Is it a month for every year or something like that? Two months? I don't know what it is. But let's say you're a year into it. We start telling ourselves, I should be over this by now. And we're ashamed to admit that we're hurting. And in fact, we're telling our hearts to shut up. And what's funny about that, as as good people, which most of us are pretty good people, we have lots of room in our lives for other people and their hurt. We just have no room in our lives for our hurt. Does that make sense? When we blame, when we numb, or we shame our suffering, we miss a great opportunity to step into the wonder, joy, and realness of life. Okay. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. Because the first thing that I want to uh, show us from this passage is that uh, none of you are getting out of this clean. That it's not just us that is suffering, but since the Garden of Eden and the fall of man, verse 22, this is Romans chapter 8, Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit 
groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And Paul is saying simply there that, hey, it's not just us that's groaning, but all of creation is groaning, that suffering is on us, that hardships are on us, they're going to come on us. And truth is, is that they've come on us more than probably most of us would ever want to admit to the people around you. I mean, that's why church sometimes gets such a bad rap as being phony, because we think we have to come in here and pretend to be better than we are. We think that. In reality, we don't have to. Because let me let you off the hook. The person sitting next to you doesn't have it together as much as they think they do, or especially as much as they want you to think they do. Matter of fact, we are masters at self-deception. We are so clever at it, we can actually convince ourselves to believe the very stuff we're telling each other that we want each other to believe. Did that make sense? Are you with me here? Hey, you're groaning. I know you are. And some of you are in so much pain this morning that it's even hard for you to sit in this room. Well, Paul understood that. Go with me to verse 35. Look what he says. In verse 35, he said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall troubles or hardships or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of the sword? What is he saying there? Well, let's go through them real quick. Trouble? Let me just be honest with you. If you want to know some, some of the deepest troubles that I go through, it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with my family. It has nothing to do with anything outside of me. Some of the deepest troubles I go through are right here. And what I mean by that is my own sin and my own brokenness. My own inability to live up to the very expectations that I put on myself. My own inconsistencies, my own promises that I'm never going to do that again only to find myself falling into the very thing that I swore I would never do and the very thing that I criticize other people for doing. That very thought of what's wrong with me. That merry-go-round of mistakes, doubts, fears, hatred, and even the haunting of my past and the terrifying propositions of the future. Can you relate to that? I don't even have to leave my own head to experience trouble. It's all right there. I can sit in a room and turn off every media source and evacuate everybody I know from my life and sit in that room by myself and suffer because I'm with me. It's staggering. That's why I tell people that are getting ready to get married, think of that. You don't think marriage is going to be hard? Is living with yourself hard? You're about to invite somebody else into that party. Paul understood that. Or how about hardships? What does he mean by that? Tough situations that just seem to get harder and harder. Like losing a job, that your kids are sick, or you're sick, or life isn't working out the way you wanted it to work out, or people are putting pressure on you that you can't handle. Financial struggles. How about persecution? Have you ever had somebody really hate you? Have you ever had somebody intentionally work against you? Have you ever had somebody gossip about you? or ridicule your faith, or your personality, or you? Have you ever felt that sting of somebody that you thought you trusted only to find out that they turned the tide on you and stuck you in the back? 
Is that hard? How about famine and nakedness? Well, okay. I'm not going to make the joke that I could make there, all right? I'm just not going to do it. Those who know me, thank you. We just know that those two things represent hard times. Endanger a sword. You know, we could all talk about the unsafe places that we have been to. And I'm just going to say this for the sake of this room. Uh, You know what? The inner city of Nashville has nothing on the unsafe places that I take my relationships to sometimes. Sometimes the most dangerous places in my life are my relationships with the people in my world. But also the places that the Lord leads us. So here's what I want to challenge you with. I want to challenge that you change the way that you view suffering. I want to challenge you this morning in the time that we have left in just a brief moment of taking suffering from the place of trying to push it out of your life by blaming, by numbing, or by, what was the other one? That, I forgot it. Shaming, yes. And moving into the category of, I'm going to walk into it with joy. How do we do that? We birth hope into our struggle. Let me try to explain. Verse 26, Romans 8, 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Let me say that again. He intercedes for us. Can I say that one more time? He intercedes for you with groans that words cannot express. And then later in verse 34, it says that Christ is interceding for you. What is he saying there? The very first way that I birth hope into my struggle, into my suffering, is this simple thing. We are not alone. We're not alone. Not only are we not alone, but the Holy Spirit is interceding for us with deep groans, and Christ is interceding for us with deep loans, deep groans. What does that mean? And I just want to underline this simple. You are free to scream. You're free to scream. You know, somewhere along the life, my life, when I was a little kid and I hurt or I got hurt, I screamed. I yelled. I said, ouch, with a lot of volume. But as I got older, I began to mistake maturity for I no longer can acknowledge that I'm hurting. And so I don't scream anymore. Actually, I shut my scream up and I stopped screaming completely. And you know what happens as adults? We start attaching our screams to artificial means of screaming. What I mean by that is like music. Like music is one of the few things in my life where I can turn the volume all the way up in my car and just go nuts, and nobody thinks I've lost my mind. But if I walk into the office on Monday morning and scream because it hurts so much, people think you've lost your mind. I love this uh, quote from Cornell West. If you don't know him, you should go find out who he is and why I would quote him. He says, music at its best is the grand archaeology into a transfiguration of our guttural cry. The great human effort to grasp in time our deepest passions and yearnings as prisoners of time. Profound music leads us beyond language to the dark roots of our scream 
and the celestial heights of our silence. I have no idea what that means, but that was so cool, wasn't it? No, what he's saying there is that music tends to unlock that part of us that wants to acknowledge the truth of our hearts is that we hurt. Now, why is it so important? And I'm not talking about literally screaming. Maybe that's what you need to do. What I'm talking about is you have the freedom because you're not alone to say it hurts, that this is hard, that I'm struggling, that I'm suffering. You know, when I was a little kid, maybe you had this experience and you cut your finger and your mom comes over, you know, before she put any medicine on it or before she put any Band-Aid on it, what would she do? She would kiss it. And for some strange reason, my memory, maybe it's failing me, it made it better. It eased the pain. Why? It's called compassion. Because compassion is the greatest healing agent in the world. And only when I'm free to groan am I free to open my heart up to compassion. Only when I'm free to acknowledge that I'm hurting will I allow myself to be comforted. And only when I allow myself to be comforted, that's when I begin to realize I'm not alone. I'm not alone. No matter how bad it gets, I'm not alone. But he's not just with us. And he's not just feeling or grown, he's doing something else too. Okay, I lost my place. Romans chapter 8, let's go back there. So I birth hope in my freedom to feel pain, but I also birth hope in my understanding of something that's profound that's going on. Verse 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Not only am I free to hurt and free to be comforted, I'm also free to understand that God is working in all my situations for the good. He's got a purpose in this. You know, uh, I don't know if any of you made it to Cheekwood and the, the exhibit of all the glass and the fine glass, but I saw a little documentary on how they made that glass. And you know what's amazing about that is it's a violent process to make that kind of beauty. I mean, it's heat, and it's fire, and it's melting, and it's guys, you know, swirling, and then sticking back in the fire, and shaping with tongs and gloves. I mean, it's like these guys are wrestling with this glass, and all of a sudden, boom, this beautiful thing appears. What if that's what the Lord is doing with us? What if I can receive that even the things that I'm going through, the Lord is refining me? The Lord is calling me to a place where I realize that it's him that's working, that he's heating me, he's shaping me, he's molding me so that I can become beautiful. Isn't it funny how, in retrospect, when I look back five years, I can go, I can look at hard times five years ago and say, oh, yeah, now I see what the Lord was doing and all that. Have you ever been able to do that? You know, that happened, oh, yeah, yeah, wow, yeah, I see. If that didn't happen, that wouldn't have happened, and that changed my understanding of that, and I met that person through that process, and then, boom. What if that time got shorter and shorter from five years ago to a week ago to two days ago to maybe right now the Lord is working? What if I poured that kind of hope onto my situation that I'm suffering in? You know, here's an interesting question. Why does God allow that? 
Why does God allow suffering? I mean, you know, my thinking is when I'm in the middle of pain, uh, could God change this? Yeah. So why doesn't he? And if he doesn't, does that mean that God's not good? Have you ever had those thoughts? Then in the middle of my suffering, I, I quickly jump to the idea that maybe if God's not involved in this and changing this, then maybe God doesn't care. Or maybe God isn't as good as he says he is. See, what's interesting about this is that we don't always have the answer to why God allows suffering, but what we do have is what the answer is not. We know that the answer is not that he is not good. I love this response from Tim Keller, who said, Jesus Christ knows firsthand despair, rejection, loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture, and imprisonment. On the cross, he went beyond even the worst human suffering and experienced cosmic rejection and pain that exceeds ours. In his death, God suffers in love, identifying with the abandoned and God-forsaken. Why did he do it? The Bible says that Jesus came on a rescue mission for creation. He had to pay for our sins so that, so that someday he can end evil and suffering without ending us. I don't know why God may be allowing the suffering that's going on in your life. But I know what the answer is not. Because Christ came and suffered for us. He stepped into more pain and more suffering than any of us will understand from our perspective. For us. So he doesn't stand at a distance. He's with us. He understands that. And he's working through that, that which is well-pleasing in his sight. So not only... Do I remember and pour hope that he is working all things for the good? Not only do I have the hope that I'm not alone, but I also have the hope that we are profoundly loved. Look at Romans 8 one last time. Verse 37. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation would be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. My suffering is not that he does not love me. He profoundly loves me. Okay. We're about to go into a season where I'm going to ask you to take those things and pour them into your life. Because think about this idea that if suffering is something and pain is something that I'm trying to get out of, I'm trying to move away from, I don't want it, I want pain-free living, I don't want to suffer, let me minimize that. And I've got all these mechanisms and all these systems and operatings that keep me from that place. I'm saying to you this morning, it's keeping you away from the journey of your own life. Because God is calling us through the power of Jesus Christ to step in, even into our suffering, and pronounce joy over them. Why? In Romans 5, he says it. He says, we rejoice in our suffering because it produces character. Character, perseverance. And per perseverance, hope, because hope reveals something. It pulls the curtain back, and it reveals that God is pouring his love out into our hearts. 
So how do I approach my suffering? I'm not alone. God is working through all things, and we are profoundly loved. So I'm free to scream. I'm free to be comforted. I'm free to look at something I cannot see and trust the Lord in it. And I'm free to know that I am profoundly loved and he has not abandoned me. And here's what's amazing. Is when I do those things, then I become a stepper. Now what do I mean by that? We become people that step. Let me quote Cornell West one more time. To be a Christian is to live dangerously, honestly, freely, to step in the name of love as if you may land on nothing, yet to keep on stepping because the something that sustains you, no empire can give you and no empire can take away. When I walk into pain and suffering, my own pain and suffering with those three promises and I'm pouring those hopes, then guess what happens? Now I have strength to step into your suffering. Now I have strength to step into the suffering of the world. Now I have the strength to step into injustice. Now I have the strength to step into those things that need healing. Now I have the strength to love freely, even though the people I may be loving may be hurting more than I even know how to comfort. Because I know when I'm stepping in, I'm not stepping in alone. And when I step in and I know I'm not stepping in alone, I know God's working even greater than I can. And when I step in and I'm not stepping in alone, I know that I'm secure because I am profoundly loved. But i got to step into that for me first and then step into it with you. Does that make sense? So in all the things that we've talked about for the last three weeks, if you're daring to say, I want to live a resurrection life, I want to see myself as profoundly the Son of God, I want to understand the deepest hungers of my life, and I don't want stuff to have me. I want to live in the vastness of his kingdom. Then you got to know when you step out of that cage into the vastness of that freedom, it's going to be hard. And there are going to be struggles. But hey, that shouldn't stop us. Not with ourselves or with others. So now what I'd like us to do, we're going to go into just a time of music and time of prayer. And I'm going to ask you, Where do you need to take these things into your life? Where are you suffering that you need these truths to come and give you hope, to believe in, to trust, to draw strength from? Let's pray. Lord, it's easy for us to fall in the trap sometimes of just blaming other people. It's easy for us to just numb our pain and even shame ourselves for even hurting. Lord, it may be the hardest thing this morning for anybody in this room to admit where they're suffering. Or the pain of the past or the struggle of the present or the fear of the future may just be ravaging their souls. But I thank you, Lord, that as a good father, you're calling us to the honesty of our own hearts. So we pray you lead us now 
that we'd be free to know where we're hurting. And in that, know that we're not alone. That you're working to make beauty out of this because you profoundly love us. Lead us in this time, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.